Welcome to Conversations Live. Tonight we join you from the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish First Nations who have lived on and continue to call these lands home. The question before us tonight is, what does BC's energy future look like? Interestingly, at Davos today, they were asking much the same question about what Europe's energy future looks like. For us here in BC, we're asking, will we continue to have access to affordable energy? Will we continue to produce oil and gas, energy that delivers billions of dollars to the provincial economy and just a little more than $5 billion through royalties and taxes to the federal, provincial and municipal governments? What about the coal we mine and sell? Some consider it the dirtiest fossil fuel there is, and it generates close to $7 billion in economic activity here in BC, employing upward of 26,000 people. Most of the coal BC produces is to make steel, and the steel sector produces between 7 and 8% of all greenhouse gases or emissions globally. For many in BC, the dream is to eliminate fossil fuel-powered vehicles from the roads by 2055 and along with that, eliminate all other fossil fuel energy sources. Those include, but are not limited to, gas stoves, gas and oil burning furnaces, gas fireplaces, gas water heaters. And it will also end gas co-powered generation electric power plants. For those of you who are wondering what co-generation is, it's the ability to achieve, to achieve two outcomes from one energy source. Co-generation power plants generally operate at mm, between 50 and 70 percent higher efficiency rates than traditional power plants. They're so effective the EU has incorporated co-generation into its energy policy aimed at reducing greenhouse gases and becoming carbon neutral by 2050. This is a power generation process that has also allowed Alberta to move away from coal-powered electrical plants. Today they have six coal-powered electric gas generation plants left in Alberta and they are slated for closing later this year or early next year. Here in BC, BC Hydro is allowing its contracts with cogeneration power plants to expire in an effort to eliminate fossil fuel generated electrical power. And related to our question tonight, will Premier Eby curtail LNG expansion? Lisa Baton, the president of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, says BC is on the cusp of being one of the most important energy hubs in the world. Are we? Will we? And is the elimination of fossil fuels, as the Business Council of BC uh, proposes, a bold political vision without a clear understanding or context coupled with a realistic plan of execution? They wonder, is it a hallucination? So what do British Columbians think? To that question, we turned to Mario Canseco, a research co. Samaya, can you please roll Mario's video? More than half of BC residents believe it would be wise to allow for further development of the LNG industry. There is a significant gender gap on this issue, as men are more likely to endorse this course of action than women. Most residents who voted for the BC Liberals and the BC NDP in the 2020 election are in favor of this idea, along with just under half of those who cast ballots for the BC Greens. Some municipalities have established tighter guidelines related to the use of natural gas in new buildings. BC residents are split on whether this is a regulation that should be contemplated everywhere. A ban on natural gas is welcomed by 39% of residents, but slightly more believe it is not something they would like to see happen. Another source of energy that is regarded as contentious is nuclear. 
Virtually the same number of BC residents are in favor and against the use of nuclear power for electricity generation. Residents of Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Island are more likely to welcome the use of small modular reactors, but their counterparts in Southern BC, Northern BC and the Fraser Valley are not as convinced. The BC government and the federal government have made specific commitments to require all current passenger truck sales to be zero emission by 2035 and 2040. While more than a third of BC residents think this shift is happening at the right pace, more than a quarter believe it is taking place too quickly, a number that rises to 45% among residents of Southern British Columbia. For Conversations Live, I'm Mario Canseco from ResearchGo. Thank you, Mario. Tonight we have a distinguished panel to dig into and look at a variety of elements associated with the reality of energy use and production in BC. Please let me introduce you to our panelists. First, Professor of Resource and Environmental Management and the author of The Citizen's Guide to Climate Success, Mark Jackard. The Honorable Ellis Ross, MLA representing Skeena, and former elected chief counselor of the Heisland Nation, which has embraced the development of LNG in its territories. Roger Dell'Antonia of Fortis, BC, which supplies natural gas, renewable natural gas, LNG, and operates four hydroelectric dams in the eastern part of the province. Ian Anderson, the past CEO of Trans Mountain, the company that will supply oil to much of the west coast of North America for many decades to come and Ross Beattie, a board member of Energex, an alternative energy company. Ross is also the founder of Pan American Silver and Equinox Gold, along with a variety of other uh, companies. As well, Derek Penner of the Vancouver Sun. He is their energy reporter. He's with us tonight in studio, and I'll be uh, asking him to direct some questions to our panelists as well. Now, just before we begin, I'm going to express my wholehearted gratitude to the wonderful sponsors who make this evening possible. They are Stem Cell Technologies, the Surrey Board of Trade, Landlord BC, Polygon, Beatty, the Port of Vancouver, Investing News Network, and Research Co. And our media partner, the Vancouver Sun. I especially want to thank Apogee Public Relations, and I have to give a big shout out to the Old Boy Productions crew, who are experts in live online and virtual event production. One last thing for viewers, you will see a Slido dialog box on your screen. Please feel free to post a question, and Sean, our Slido master, will be receiving your questions and bringing them forward to us. And I'll use many of them to inform me about topics and questions to present to the panelists. Now to the question at hand. In a recent study by UVic professor Curran Crawford, that was published in the November issue of Applied Energy Journal, Crawford says to power all of those electric vehicles, just the electric vehicles, we will need to more than double our electricity production from where it is today. And his projection includes Site C. Currently, there are 82 hydroelectric dams in BC, and that may be it, given that the province appears to have no plans to build anymore. So where will our energy come from. The report's authors suggest geothermal and biomass are in his model and so is solar, run a river and wind. But is there any way that that will be enough to produce the energy, especially the electrical energy that we will need to be able to keep it affordable? Mark Jackard, I would suggest you agree that yes, we can do it. How can we do it? 
Yeah, so um, I'm aware of, uh, of the study you're talking about, and we are seeing a dramatic increase in non-greenhouse gas emitting electrical energy around the world. And if you were to think about a population of British Columbia of 5 million, eventually 6 million people, and the landmass that we have and its potential, uh, you have easily the ability to make that electricity. Will our electricity costs, our electricity prices go up because of that? They will. But in fact, our costs of energy could well be stable or go down because you're going to be buying electricity instead of gasoline. And even in some cases, electricity instead of natural gas. And so what kind of resources will that be? Well, as he said, uh, an enormous amount from wind in certain areas of the province, connecting beautifully into the energy storage of our hydro reservoirs, but also uh, energy like geothermal, uh, and even, uh, even uh, where possible from our, our forest biomass. That won't be a huge amount, but that's also a possibility. So we have the ability physically in our landmass to make that electricity, but it won't be easy. It, it's going to be complicated, absolutely. Can we do it in time for our <clears throat> ambitious objectives? Oh yeah, quite easily. I mean, I'm watching Scandinavia right now, which is switching more rapidly than us in their building sector, to electricity and in their transportation sector to electricity and some biofuels. And they're doing that at a tremendous rate, um, faster than we are, and they're able to stay on top of it. They're able to stay on top of it with the kind of investments that we need to make. Denmark was at 80% coal just a couple of decades ago, and now they've switched over completely. So think of that transition happening at that speed. Um, that can definitely happen in British Columbia, but we're all going to have to be on side, and there are some big implications that I'm sure we're going to explore tonight. Roger, your response to this question, can we do it? Are you in agreement with Mark, or do you see it a little differently? I think uh, uh, generally I agree um, that you know there's going to be great uh, a significant increase in the amount of electrification that we're going to see, but I think we got to take a step back and 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 you know people are asking this question of how do we electrify transportation, how do we electrify different parts of the uh, the economy. I think you know the focus really has to be on decarbonization, like and I and I use the words carefully. I think when people talk about electrification, it's shorthand for presumption that because it's electric and it's not emitting at source, it's necessarily carbon neutral. So I think we have to uh, really uh, specify what we mean and what our end objective is. So the goal by 2050, from a Canadian perspective, uh, under the Net Zero Accountability Act, uh, is net zero uh, emissions uh, from the economy uh, by 2050. So that's really about decarbonization. It's not necessarily just going to be electrification. I think electrification will be the, um, the, uh, the workhorse of that transition. But when you think about the emissions problem, if you think about BC, there's about 65 million tons of carbon emitted in our uh, 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 inventory. Canada, it's about 670 million. So BC is about 10%. We're lower per capita emissions uh, than the other province, close to Quebec, maybe less because of their uh, hydro. We're blessed we have a hydro backbone uh, across the province. But when you think about that 65 million uh, tons, uh, of emissions that you're trying to decarbonize, transportation is 40%. Uh, upstream oil and gas is about 20%. Uh, manufacturing 
heavy industry, probably uh, roughly in that 15 to 20%. So 75% uh, is coming from those sectors. The building component uh, is about 11%. So we, it's really a question of on your pathway to 2050, highest and best use of your electrons, highest and best use of your renewable natural gas, highest and best use of hydrogen, and it's a transition, right? So you have to think about, is the goal 2030 or is the goal 2050? And I think the, the decision has to look at, um, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good in this, uh, in this situation, uh, because, you know, the steps you take in the next 10 years um, set you up for the, the following 20 years or 30 years. Uh, and I think we have to start having a discussion about how do we optimize the energy uh, map and think about what's the fastest and most affordable and also resilient way to get to decarbonization as opposed to it's going to be one source or the other. Ellis, do you think that that's what it is, one source or the other? Uh, what was it in your time when you were elected chief counselor Heisla and now as uh, elected representative for Skeena that made you say LNG uh, is an important component of the uh, you know life, uh, the economy and opportunity uh, in northwestern British Columbia? Well originally I opposed LNG. Uh, I was one of the only standouts that, that didn't like the impact I didn't like the idea of uh, LNG overall. I didn't like the, the land impact, uh, but it was one of my fellow councillors that told me that I should actually look at a, a broad suite of issues facing our people before I made a decision. And I was actually quite shocked that uh, Aboriginal First Nations all across Canada were living in poverty and there was no way out of it. Uh, the case law that actually came around in 2004, the high court case, actually opened the door for us to be part of the economy. But that meant doing a lot of homework. And it wasn't just LNG that came to us. It was hydro. It was uh, running the river. It was solar. It was windmills. And every one of those projects fell off for a number of different reasons. And when I'm looking at the, the, the discussion happening in BC, number one, you can't compare us to other jurisdictions unless they have the same geography. We have a different kind of land here in BC. We've got all kinds of land. And there's, there's a number of different things happening in BC that will delay that, that transition. Uh, number one, rights and title. Any energy project you're talking about takes up a tremendous amount of land, which means you're giving up uh, land for hunting, trapping, gathering. So Canada's got to balance that. And every form of energy is not ethical or clean. And I don't think Canada here, we're having a fulsome discussion on where the material is coming for these electric cars in the first place. I mean, if Canada wants to do all the mining for, the, for all these electric batteries, fine, let's, let's do it. Because mining has a huge impact. But right now, the, most of the material coming out of the, the Congo, for example, is cobalt. And they do not have the same labor standards as Canada. They do not have the same environmental standards. So I agree, if we're going to look at energy sources, we've got to look at it at a, at a higher level. And we've got to compare all these energy sources in terms of the pros and cons that go with that energy source. Yeah. Yeah, I just uh, want to pick up on a couple of points that, that Mark made, actually. And, and the polling results show one of them. And that is that... Um, I'm not an expert on electrification or LNG or, or, or Site C or power generation. But what I do know is that 
in order for those investments to be made on those forms of, of energy generation, we need the ability to attract the capital. We need to have regulatory processes. We need to have legislative line of sight. We need to have permitting and approval processes in our country, and, and I've got a bit of experience in that, that are efficient enough to attract the capital. Otherwise, you're placing the burden on the public purse, and that can't be the place where these, these projects are developed, where these uh, power generation alternatives are sourced. So we need to have a clarity of process and a certainty of price and economic and commercial well-being so that we can attract the capital. Secondly, um, we still require the infrastructure. Uh, we still require the ability to move the power from, from source to use. And again, believe me, building infrastructure in BC is not a simple task. And you've got different areas of the province that view that infrastructure differently, whether it's a power line or it's, or it's a gas line or it's an oil line. You got segments of British Columbia that view these things differently. So respect for the land, respect for the people, the traditions and the values is critically important to the, the infrastructure development, no matter the energy source that you're talking about moving from uh, from source to use. So those are a couple of elements of this, you know, Mark referred to, we all need to be on the same page and we need to be aligned to be successful. Well, that's exactly what that means. It means that there's the political will and the political strength to provide the economic certainty to attract the capital and the proponent and the regulatory frameworks that respect the land and respect the use of the land in a way that the infrastructure can get built. You, of course, drove the uh, twinning of the Trans Mountain Pipeline at a time when so many people were saying, no, 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 oil is peaked, we're moving away from it. What was it that you said, no, that's not the case, oil is not going away, uh, and we're going to keep moving forward with this project? A couple of things. One, I think, Stu, was the um, acceptance that whatever the energy transition is that we're in, and we'll talk a lot about that, it's a decades-long, generational-long transformation. And uh, oil will continue to be consumed globally. It's going up right now. It's going to exceed 100 million barrels a day. Um, oil will continue to be consumed in one form or another. Developing countries are, are, are increasing their use. And let's create a vision where... Uh, the Canadian barrel can be the preferred barrel globally. That it's decarbonized, is as clean as we can make it. That it is highly regulated, environmentally responsible. That it respects the land and, and the lands of the people where it's being developed and the riches are being shared. Let's have the last barrel sold, a Canadian barrel. There are places in the world that, that aren't as democratic as this country. There are places of the world that don't have the environmental regulatory standards that we have in Canada. So I believed in that vision. And I also believed that um, along with, with the commercial end of, of, of the pipeline, is 80% supported, 80% uh, contracted for 20 years. <clears throat> that kept the economic viability of it attractive enough to pursue. And I suppose the third piece and uh, an element of it that I spent most of my time on was building the support within the indigenous communities upon whose lands we were, we were building. And I'm proud that we have 63 supportive communities, every community from Edmonton to Burnaby, save and accept the Broad Inlet uh, uh, bands, 
uh, but we worked very hard because it wasn't just for that purpose of gaining the support of those communities and the economic advantage, but it was to make the project better. We learned a tremendous amount about protection of land and water and animals, uh, protection of plants, environmental responsibility on those lands, uh, rooting through those lands, historical sites that were protecting, that weren't protected by other infrastructure that was built. So the project, by virtue of the, the, the effort we made within Indigenous communities, ended up being a better project. So it was those visions, I think, Stuart, that, that kept me uh, you know, at the wheel for as long as I did. Remarkable uh, obstacles to uh, to work your way through, Ross. You you're on record as saying no, no, no. We can we can make this transition, and you believe that sustainable alternative forms of energy are going to play a very important role. How do you see that playing itself out here in BC? Well, I'm I'm kind of pathologically optimistic as as a as just by nature, but 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 it's not it's not crazy optimism. I mean, my company Energex. Um, has spent $2.5 billion in BC in the last 15 years. We're the second largest producer of electricity in the province after BC Hydro. We produce about 1,000 megawatts, and we do this in, in a clean way. We produce, uh, we produce hydropower, run of river hydro, and we produce wind power from 22 different operations in BC. They're all fairly small, but they add up to a lot of power. So, you know, we've been doing this a long time, and um, and I, I guess I understand the game pretty well. We also produce a lot of, we produce about 4,000 megawatts in Chile and in France and all over the States and all over Canada. And, and the reason I'm optimistic is because, you know, on the demand side, I think we have to be careful of listening to scaremongers. I mean, we have to be very careful about projecting things too far because we all get surprised. And when I started uh, the clean energy business in, 20, in 2008, uh, you know, uh, that was the time when people predicted electricity prices were going to go way higher. We were going to need a lot more even then. And then the financial crisis happened. Electricity prices plummeted. And, and actually, the best form of electricity uh, demand growth is, 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 or supply growth is actually efficiency, doing things better with existing amounts of electricity. And I see that happening with electric cars and with all sorts of things, heat pumps and so on. So we're actually going to have an economy that's going to grow. But on the demand side, I don't necessarily think we're going to need double, triple, quadruple the amount of electricity we, we, we consume today. Now, even if we do say double or need double in 25 years, um, which is a prediction of some, uh, it's, it's, it's possible, but it's not necessarily going to be more expensive. Uh, BC is so fortunate, we're so blessed with, with you know, a, a incredible geography that supports hydropower, supports wind energy. It's not so good for solar power unless you're in the Okanagan. Uh, but we have this, this blessing of, of, of a natural energy endowment that supports clean energy. And I am absolutely certain that uh, we, can, we, can we can supply whatever clean energy we need for the foreseeable future from existing sources of two things, hydro and wind. That's all we need. We, and we can do it the same way we've built our business, by doing it uh, in small amounts where it's needed, when it's needed. With, you know, right now we have in our 22 different plants in BC, we have 25 First Nations agreements where they're all getting benefits from these clean energy projects, which are long-term, virtually permanent projects. So they're absolutely great for indigenous reconciliation and involvement. Uh, they're, they're good for the economy. They're big, expensive projects to build. They actually don't have much of a footprint. They have relatively small footprints. It's just a great business. And we can, I, can, I can tell you places where we could develop 1,000 megawatts, 2,000 megawatts, 3,000 megawatts in BC um, through clean energy 
all we need, and it's not going to be necessarily that expensive, particularly with all the, the, um, uh, the technology developments with battery technology uh, and, and so forth. So it's, 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 a, it's a great business to be in. Costs are coming down. Wind and hydropower are competitive with all other forms of power. It's, it's, a, it's a great business, and I think it's, it's here to stay in BC. We're very lucky. We have these batteries, these giant lakes, these giant dams that, that again, most places don't have, and we're going to be able to use those for our future. Mark had referred to geothermal earlier on in his. <laughs> so I want your take on, is geothermal one of those sources in British Columbia yeah, yeah. that we can actually uh, turn to and say, yeah, there's a... a yeah, well, regrettably, I have a lot of experience in geothermal, and it's not very good. Uh, <laughs> so I would say of all the clean energy, it's probably the most theoretically best, but it's the operationally and financially and most risky of, of all of the four classic clean energies, wind, hydro, solar, and geothermal. So I would say it's, it's likely to not be a major power source in 25 or 50 years. It will be on the fringe here and there, but it needs a lot of things to make a, a geothermal project work, and, uh, and we don't have all of those in most places of BC. Roger. I just I want to pick up uh, on the first question of Mark and, and also Ross's comment. I, I too am optimistic. I've been in this industry now for too many years, close to 30. But um, one of the things I think this discussion and I, you know, the audience, I think, hopefully picks up on this, that, you know, the, the energy systems, you know, there's uh, there's the cost of the energy, but there's also the concept of capacity. So, you know, if you take uh, those of you who were in Vancouver uh, before December, we had our, our cold snap there. Um, we. BC Hydro, I think on December 22nd, they, they had a press release. They had an all-time peak, 10,900 megawatts on the hour of December 22nd in the morning. Oh. Our electric system hit an all-time peak uh, around, uh, around 900 megawatts uh, in the uh, Okanagan. Uh, the gas system uh, delivered on an equivalent basis in that same hour uh, about 21,000 megawatts. So it's double the energy that's being delivered for peak load. So when we think about the, the, the problem, the challenge, it's not simply just the cost of the energy. Uh, cap uh, capacity is really uh, the, the constraint, right? So for instance, wind, solar, uh, with scale, uh, significant decreases uh, over time, that's proven. Uh, we've got great resources here in BC. Uh, scale matters there. You can't shrink distances, right? And and generating capacity uh, and peak energy, that's where you need uh, resiliency. You have to pay for that. If you look at the Texas situation in 2021, uh, when they had their polar vortex, everyone, you know, uh, those on the gas side of the business in Texas are blaming wind. Those on the wind side are saying, well, the, the gas uh, uh, generating wasn't working. Um, none of that's true. It's policy decision. You know, policymakers in Texas decades ago uh, valued an energy-only market. No capacity, didn't pay, uh, produce for capacity. When you think about capacity, the simplest way is if uh, uh, energy is one person in a car, capacity is a minivan, right? So it may only drive around one person when you need it, but when you need it to take seven, it can. So, so this capacity discussion um, really speaks to uh, the nature of the jurisdiction, right? Where are our generating sources? Where is our load? Uh, how do you manage peak uh, load versus uh, base load and the nature of the generation uh, versus intermittent versus base load. So uh, another example, Alberta, uh, that same February 2021 period, 
they had about 1,800 megawatts of solar wind biomass in their energy stack. Uh, low uh, pressure front, very low wind, minus 40. Uh, so sun in Alberta, you know, it's only half the day uh, or less if it's in February. So that 1,800 megawatt resource stack uh, only delivered less than 10 megawatts on the two-day period just because of the, the reality. So we need wind, we need solar, we're going to need geothermal, we're going to need all of it, and we can get it. I just think that when we talk about the, the issue, it's not just the cost of the energy. You have to consider how the energy is being used and what it, it, it's best suited for. And that's where we really have to talk about resiliency uh, when we think about our energy systems and we have to think about the capacity challenges, especially on peak thermal energy delivery. When we have peaker and peaker winters due to climate change, right? This is part of the problem we're trying to solve. And we have, you know, in the last three years, I've, I've heard heat dome for the first time in my life atmosphere, river, and bomb cyclone, right? So these are the things that we have to think about and value properly resiliency and capacity in our energy delivery systems. Derek, you have a question. Yeah, it's probably best directed to, to Ross on electrification. Um, BC Hydra's integrated resource plan now um, has the province in, in surplus. Um, they still have to uh, absorb uh, site C when it's, once it's complete. Uh, in the meantime, they've they've made policy decisions such as ending the standing offer program for uh, small hydro producers, um, and I, I believe the uh, a lot of indigenous uh, partners in in power plants and, and developers uh, feel like they've had the the rug pulled out from under them uh, with looking at site C and and they don't know when um, opportunities are, are going to op open up again. Um, it, will the power sector have a, a, a capital problem uh, when it comes around to, to needing um, that electricity and develop, developing that electricity? A great question. And, um, so Site C, that's a train that's left the station, right? It's, it's, it's being built. It's almost finished. It's, it's crazy expensive. Um, it's probably the last big project Hydro builds. Um, I was never a big fan of it, but that's yesterday's story. Um, the, the truth is, from, from personal experience here, the private sector can build power needs in British Columbia when it's needed, where it's needed, way cheaper. I think it's about, in our, our calculation, we're about 40% cheaper. All privately funded, not a penny has to come from the public purse, with a ton more First Nations and local community engagement. Why? Because these are going to be local projects in partnership with First Nations, not in, in, in opposition to them. They're easier to permit. They're a much smaller footprint. You don't have these long-term, you know, ruinations of valleys and sort of things that, that, that big, big dams involve. So uh, will there be private capital? That's really your question. And, and I can tell you 100%. I mean, power projects are dream projects for banks. Any long-term, low-cost provider of capital, they want to be there because they're long-term projects. They perm they're potentially permanent. I mean, a good hydro project runs for, you know, without having to retool at all, 60 to 100 years. A good wind project runs for 40 or 50 years. Solar, maybe 20, 25 years. Uh, so uh, there's a ton of capital. Everywhere Energex has gone, and I can tell you we've bid all sorts of places like Saskatchewan, Ontario, we've lost because we weren't the lowest bidder. There are, if, if there's a call for power for, let's say, 200 megawatts from, from a province in BC or another jurisdiction, there are, there are power suppliers that are going to bid thousands of megawatts into that call for, for power all privately funded. So it, there's a lot of private capital. 
I guarantee you we don't need to take money from the public purse anymore. I don't think there'll be any more sightseas for, for British Columbia taxpayers to worry about. Sean, uh, so we've got questions coming in on Slido. Uh, can you direct one of them here to the panel? I can, absolutely. There's some good questions coming in again this month. Uh, uh, from Martin, uh, Martin Cavan, Fortis PC recently stated that if everyone in the Lower Mainland replaced gas with electricity, it would require the output of seven Site C dams. Given this, why is BC Hydro promoting a switch from gas furnaces to electric heat pumps? Now, Roger, you can't speak for BC Hydro, but you can speak for, for, for Fortis. Well, given that Fortis BC is in the question, I think I should answer yeah. it. Uh, so I think uh, the question is referring to a study that was actually done by University of Victoria and their faculty of engineering. They have the integrated uh, uh, energy systems um, uh, department. I think it was referenced, they did that study you referenced in right. the first question on EV. Sure so, Crawford, yeah. Yeah, so uh, that study looked at uh, electrification of building heat in uh, the Metro Vancouver area uh, from two perspectives out to, to 2050. The, the energy needs uh, to displace uh, uh, effectively natural gas uh, that's already uh, in place, but also dealing with load growth uh, out to 2050. Uh, and they also looked at the requirement for battery storage. Uh, they looked at uh, a number of different scenarios, uh, you know, normal weather, uh, a high cold scenario like we experienced in a lower cold. Um, and really what they're getting at is that how uh, easy is it for an energy system to flex under uh, extreme uh, conditions? So uh, their, their analysis, I, I can't remember whether it was seven, it seems a bit high, I think it was a, a, a number of sightsees, but I'm not quite sure if it was seven. But the point they're making is not only is there a significant uh, uh, generating capacity needed, uh, sightsee there I think they're using is reference to firm base load dispatchable energy as opposed to intermittent. Um, they also said that it would be about uh, uh, on, on very cold uh, peak uh, conditions, up to 350 gigawatt hours of storage. What that storage form is, if it's battery storage, that's multiples and multiples of what's currently installed globally. If you're looking at pump storage, it's probably a quarter of the world's installed um, uh, uh, storage. So it just shows the magnitude of the problem. And I think really what it leads us to do is think about how should we think about the gas uh, system, which is a great battery in its own right. It's the biggest storage battery we have. How do you decarbonize what's in there to allow it to do what it does well, which is peak thermal load? How do you optimize uh, the electric system for what it does really well, mechanical applications, right? And think about this as an integrated uh, problem to solve. Uh, uh, decarbonize what's going through the gas system, uh, expand electrification where it makes sense, uh, so, so I think the, the challenge is, the discussion we need to have right now is thinking about this as a provincial uh, issue and how to, how to marry up the strengths of both systems. Because at the end of the day, uh, decisions that are made uh, short term, uh, you know, they end up uh, crowding out decisions that you're going to need as you get towards 2050. So I think this is, uh, uh, that analysis is really uh, setting the, 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 the framework for what is the true challenge we're trying to solve. Mark. <laughs> yeah. Can I add yeah, on to uh, that? Uh, yeah. yeah. So um, I think I've done a lot of work more recently on why humanity in different parts of the world has failed on climate. Like why 
you might say, oh, well, people weren't well-meaning two decades ago and three decades ago and one decade ago. No, they were the same as the group in this room addressing questions just like we're addressing right now. Mm -hmm. And what we end up doing is saying, oh my goodness, there are some peak times and some crisis times. And so it looks like we need to keep burning fossil fuels. Now, what I liked about Roger's answer, and this kind of relates to an earlier question you asked, is we've actually done a very good job in the, in, in the more industrialized world, but even especially in Canada and especially in British Columbia, in building very reliable energy systems. And we, we actually have regulatory processes. We, we do complain, we don't get it right all the time. We don't always plan properly, but we actually have some of the best systems in the world. Um, it's interesting, in the 1990s for five years, I was chairing the BC Utilities Commission and even regulating the Trans Mountain Pipeline. <laughs> and, um, but also uh, noting that we do, first of all, utility commissioners like us, and the executives of BC Hydro and the cabinet ministers of whatever political party really don't want the lights going out or people being cold on their watch. And so there's a lot of incentive to, to do the things that we're talking about in detail right now. Now, how it actually unfolds, will we still use a lot of natural gas? But that means either replace, you know, gaseous product in pipes because it's coming from a biological source or it's mostly hydrogen from some non-emitting source. And I think Roger's kind of hinting at that. Or will we use a lot more electricity, but we're going to have to have that backup that we need for it at critical times? Well, I, maybe that's because I'm also an economist by training, I'm kind of relaxed about that. Like I'm not commit, I'm not in one company or committed to one technology in British Columbia right now, we're putting in a policy, the government is, which says you have to decarbonize the gaseous product that's going through the lines over the next 25 years. And we don't know if most people will have electric heat pumps in buildings or if they'll be using gaseous product, and we don't care. We do care about that cost, but we also know that when we've looked at this, even the kind of study that you just talked about from Kern Crawford and others, the cost of energy for a typical family is six to eight percent of their budget, and our decarbonization scenarios never have it going more than eight percent of their budget as our incomes grow over time. So it's important not to have these challenges, which are very important challenges, but not to have them say, oh, so we better delay this initiative to decarbonize the gas stream or this initiative to electrify, um, because actually we don't need to do that. We do need, if we're talking about uh, heat domes, burning of towns, flooding, infrastructure, we need to decarbonize. So that's the policy that we need to keep going with, regardless of the big challenges that we're talking about. I do have a foot in both camps. And I, I, I'm, I, I think the discussion needs to be agnostic. I think the way you've framed it about gaseous, like our, we, we commission Guidehouse, they're a global energy and environmental consultancy. And we put a uh, challenge to them by 2050, 80% reduction of emissions, um, electrification pathway, diversified pathway, even in the diversified pathway, there's a lot of electrification. Uh, the diversified pathway gives you diversification, resiliency. Um, but we see in our own modeling, you know, two thirds of what goes through the pipe is gonna be either renewable, it's gonna be hydrogen, it's gonna be a decarbonized source. 
The parallel is before wind and solar came into vogue back in the 80s, early 90s, coal was the backbone of, 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 the, of the energy system in the US elsewhere. You didn't cut the wires uh, because you didn't like what was going down and you swapped out the coal for renewable energy, renewable ele electrons. We think of the system distinct from the product. I'd put craft beer down the, down the pipeline if that could fuel homes. Um, so, you know, it's really, to, to Mark's comment, you know, the, the challenge is decarbonization. The systems are built, they're in place, they're regulated, they're well-maintained, they're paid for in many, many instances. So how do you optimize the decarbonization by integrating the systems uh, to ensure that you're you're taking advantage of every opportunity, every innovation. Hydrogen, I'm sure we'll talk about, is as an opportunity as well. So, so uh, I very much agree. Just want to, uh, you know, not 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 necessarily focus on the fossil fuel end of it. It's really the decarbonized energy form that we need to focus on. Okay, given that electricity uh, is somewhere around 16, 17 percent of the energy that we have available to us or use in, in British Columbia, that means that we're getting energy from a wide variety of other sources. Ian, can you see that mix changing to the point where we go, no, the vast majority of it is going to be uh, through electrification? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think we're seeing a trajectory that's going to continue. And, and what most of us are saying is it's going to need all sources and it's going to need attention on both the supply side and the demand side. Um, and over time, we certainly are going to see a reduction in fossil fuel consumption and fossil fuels will be, get cleaner, as I, as I said earlier. And there's upstream commitments to that to the elimination of, of emissions through carbon capture and other, other technologies. And I think the, the sectors are aligned on that. Um, and it's a trajectory that the public and, and, the, and the politicians are to some extent gonna have to be patient with, you know, because it is a trajectory that will take a generation. And that's what makes building the infrastructure like Site C or Trans Mountain still very viable uh, under, under, under current, you know, uh, capacity needs. Mm -hmm. Sean, we have another question uh, right now. Yes, we do. Uh, for Mr. Ellis Ross, should more LNG go ahead, even if it means we don't meet our climate targets? Uh, it is going to go ahead, uh, without a doubt. Uh, LNG Canada's phase one is already approved, and now they just announced that they can't really depend on BC Hydro or, or wait for the infrastructure demand to be built up for phase two. So they're, they're going to build phase two, which is going to be the complete 28 million tons being exported out of Kinemat. Uh, aside from that, Cedar LNG, an offshoot from the LNG Canada pipeline, that's actually a project from the Heiser Nation, which is my band, uh, one of the projects that I helped put together. That's going to go ahead. Uh, the precedent's already been set. Wood fiber already got federal approval, provincial approval, already got their own approval through their, their, own, their, their own approval process as well, their own environmental assessment. Uh, the, the one thing I'll add, though, in this conversation, you can't have a conversation like this in terms of decarbonization or emissions in isolation. I mean, for decades, my band knew just through research that places like India, China, Japan, Korea were starved for energy, and they needed that energy badly. Nobody called it a crisis. But they were burning dirty fuels, they were burning coal, they, they were burning anything to get their hands on for energy. They're still trying to get energy. Now throw Europe into the mix. 
going back to coal, denouncing nuclear, and then, and I agree, policy decisions that aren't well thought out for the long term actually lead up to these kind of problems. What's happening in Europe is just not Germany. It's an energy discussion that needs to be opened up. And I don't believe Canada should be actually trying to reinvent the wheel here. You've got examples of what's happening in Germany and Europe. You've already got the need over there in Europe, uh, China and India. I mean, this is great, the path we're on. Let's talk about more straddle plants. Let's, let's get, send a cleaner natural gas product to Asia instead of just sending out in a raw form and then buying back the manufactured manufacture products back. Let's think about that. But let's not think that Canada, for, for any amount of time, you're going to be the solution without looking at the broader picture in terms of what's happening globally. You mentioned nuclear, and it is a topic that uh, evokes uh, quite a broad range of reactions. I, I see you right now, Ross, going, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, well, I, I'm going to, before I get into nuclear, I just want to respond to some of the comments here. You know, l let's remember, folks, that we actually have a bit of a global crisis going on right now. You know, this bit of a global warming, it is an existential threat to humans, and it doesn't matter whether they're in India or China or, or, or BC. We are having huge costs we don't need to have if we get off this carbon pollution that's been going on now for 100 and almost 200 years. Uh, science is, 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 is factual, it's not, it's not a theory anymore. And we have a biodiversity crisis. We're, you know, we're doing terrible things to our nature and we've got to fix it because it's a human existential crisis. And, and it's not something we can push off, it's right now. And so speed is, time is of the essence. We've got to do something. And, and yeah, okay, you can say, well, whatever we do is not gonna really matter in the big picture in the globe, these are global problems. But it's incumbent on every one of us to try to fix this problem and, and be part of the solution. Every single person, because if everybody does it, guess what happens? Change, big change and quick. There's technology solutions, there's capital solutions, human resource solutions, we can do it. We have to put our heads down and go fast. And so uh, that's, that's kind of why I'm very active in, in this business myself. Now, shifting over to the uranium question, it's part of the solution, quite frankly. Uh, nukes are clean forms of energy with one exception. They have radioactivity and they have long life uh, waste products that have to be looked after. Well, we've been generating electric power now for 50 years, uh, actually going on 70 years, pardon me. And uh, we've had a couple of incidents, uh, bad incidents for sure. Um, we have to remember and try to solve those so they don't happen again. And, and maybe these small modular reactors are one of the solutions 10, 4, to that. 10-4, 10-5, yeah. 10, 4, 10 5, maybe, yeah. That, maybe that's a solution. Maybe there are other solutions. But I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say, well, we can't have any of these uh, forms of electricity generation, because the truth is, there's no such thing as clean energy. Every single form of electrical generation is dirty in one form or another, including wind, hydro, and solar. It all has impacts. Uh, you have to balance all of those impacts with what they create for, for human society and for, and for nature, for all, all, all things that we have to live with on Earth. And in that context, I would say I'm certainly a fan of nukes versus, say, uh, gas power generation, oil power generation, or certainly coal power generation, which is the dirtiest of all by a factor of 10. Ellis, and then Mark, I want to come to you because I want, I want to find out uh, what your definition of climate success is as well. Ellis. I agree. We all do our part. Uh, we all want to see a decarbonized future. We all want to see cleaner energy actually flowing through our pipes and our transmission lines. 
and everybody, if we do our part, we can actually affect the energy use. But you're preaching to the converted here in BC. Really, the people you should be telling us to are the 1.4 billion people in China who want the same standard of living as British Columbians. The 1.3 billion people in India, who, mind you, are going to overtake the highest populated country in China pretty quick. I mean, these, they're very energy deficient. And they want energy. You're not going to stop them. So to have the conversation and go over there and tell the Chinese government, says, you got to do your part. You got to cut out burning these, these, all these fossil fuels, dirty fuels. You got to do your part and we'll all, we'll all be better for it. Have that conversation with them. I mean, out of the top 10 polluters in the world, Canada, we hardly register. We keep up what we're doing. We keep decarbonizing. And let's start setting a template for the rest of the world. But really, Canada, we're hitting above our weight here. Uh, yeah, we're hitting above our weight. On a, it's pretty hard to sort of compare Canada to China. On a per capita basis, we're one of the biggest polluters in the world, and we're above China. We're above all of those developing countries. But I, I just want to point out that um, when we talk about, we've talked about LNG here, and we talked about electricity, and we didn't talk about how you make LNG, which is to use a heck of a lot of electricity. So uh, if you're going to do it without having emissions and hitting targets. And finally, when we, when we talked about some the environmental effects of what we humans are doing, as Ross just did, um, then let's talk about what does that mean for, for our natural gas industry in the case of producing LNG for export. And when we think of an organization like the International Energy Agency, which has never been a strong environmental organization, um, when they do analysis now, they say, oh, if humanity is going to have emissions fall at a rate that would prevent these horrendous outcomes that we're now experiencing in British Columbia, and they will get worse, then British Columbia LNG exports don't look like they're part of that future. So I don't know about that. I know these are very good uh, energy economy uh, modelers, and I'm just surprised that we're not talking about connecting that. So Stu, you asked me, why do people fail? That's why they fail. That's why we've been failing. We, we say, oh, I can do this project because um, we'll be the last barrel of oil or because we're better than the other barrels of oil, even though the Nigerians might say, well, we're poorer people, so we should be the last barrel. Or the Saudis say, we're the cheapest producers, so we should be the last barrel. Or others say, we have the lowest emissions or we have lower emissions than Canada, we should be the last barrel. So we always come up with some rationalization to build the coal plant, to expand the oil production. And, and I don't, see Trans Mountain is necessarily expanding oil production, so I've never been critical of it, but, uh, or LNG production, that we, we end up rationalizing those about how we're better than others, and that's what's going on all around the planet, if you want to understand why we're going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> okay, well, what does climate success look like to you based on the book that you have just published? <laughs> Well, it, it involves challenging ourselves um, on, especially people like us who have some influence on, on this kind of internal contradiction. Um, I, I like a quote from Sinclair Lewis who says, it's hard to uh, get people to understand, get someone to understand something when his or her income or wealth depends on not understanding it. So we are going to go through this convoluted logic. What we need are to 
elect and keep in power uh, political parties that politicians who will be sincere in doing the things we need, which actually Canada is doing quite well on now, which is to be hard on gasoline vehicles. We need to phase them out. We're not doing it as fast as Norway, but we're getting serious about doing that. Even about how we do home heating, even how our industries run, all of those kind of things we put in policies in place, which we're seeing now in Canada, a zero emission vehicle regulation, um, a clean gaseous product uh, regulation that we're developing here in British Columbia, uh, a, a pricing system for industry that, uh, that Canada is doing, and a clean electricity regulation that we put in in British Columbia many years ago and Canada is now copying. Those are the policies, support politicians who are doing that, Politicians have done that from all political stripes, which is why I've been able to have all political parties upset with me at one time or another, uh, because I, you know, whether it was uh, the BC Liberals bringing in our carbon tax and the NDP fighting against it, and now the NDP supporting it, um, but but the Liberals seeming very negative on a very important clean fuel regulation. So those are some examples of. Uh, be careful about aligning with a particular political party. Listen to what they're really doing on climate versus diluting us. Well, let me bring in a clip that we recorded from Denise Mullen from uh, BCBC. Uh, and she'll, uh, I guess, uh, turn up the temperature a little bit here as well. She's saying, I think you're dreaming. Uh, Samaya, can you run that clip, please? <laughs> Electrification with renewables is the holy grail of greenhouse gas emission reductions. But in recent research, from SFU School of Sustainable Energy Engineering, it, uh, also the School of Public Policy, SFU, via C.D. Howe, as well as UBC's Clean Energy Research Institute, question the technical achievability of BC's electrification and by extension net zero aspirations. The inconvenient truth is that in terms of total energy demand, electricity represents less than one-fifth of, of that total for both BC and Canada. To electrify everything, one estimate suggests, suggests BC needs to do at least triple um, the current electricity production to reach net zero by 2050. We think this quantum, that is we at the Business Council, think this quantum is low and significantly higher. But for argument's sake, let's just accept triple. It doesn't really matter because the amount of energy flow, that's the thing that's, the, that's important, is huge. And at a minimum is equal to at least 20 site Cs in capacity and energy production. Um, for Canada, this number is multiple hundreds of projects higher, given that Canada first has to move from an 80% to something closer to BC's uh, renewable composition at around 95% clean. This will be expensive, technically challenging, because physics mean you just can't plug something into the system. Um, it will have huge land use impacts. Uh, spatial things are, are items we haven't really talked about ever uh, in the public policy realm, and many of British Columbians simply won't accept them, as well as lead to an inevitable increase in the price of electricity. The latter is one of the last remaining competitive advantages we have as inputs for industrial development. So my question to you is, do politicians, the media, and the public really understand what is required to move toward net zero, both in terms of the electric sector and even more so across the entire economy? <laughs> I'm going to go to Ian first because you've been through this entire discussion over and over and over again with media, politicians and the public. Do you get a sense that people understand the complexity 
of what it is that we're trying to do here. And oh, what is and isn't possible. Yeah, so I mean, my personal opinion is 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 nowhere near full uh, and complete understanding of the implications and and what the trajectory is that I talked about earlier and how long it's going to take and what the cost impact is going to be and what the investment requirements are going to be and what the regulatory certainty is going to have to be and 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 that's where Mark really started the conversation an hour ago is that we all need to get aligned on that and that means taking the politics and the grandstanding out of it um, agreeing on the science agreeing on the economics and then charting a path forward that's digestible to the public because the public ultimately is going to um, pay for it. You know, whatever that transition is, whether it's large or not, or it's spiky uh, as we transition, the public, uh, I think, is going to react. You know, we see how they react to um, the, the expected impact of a carbon tax in your, in your gas tank. Well, the intent is to have an effect on demand, right? Well, the public reacts to that because the price goes up. and They don't like the price to go up. And then the politicians decide to give the money back. And I get climate credits, you know, entering my bank account for some reason. It, it just isn't consistent application of really the, uh, the understanding of the trajectory, what we need to do as a nation to get there, and how we collectively need to align ourselves. And, and one of the things I saw in Trans Mountain that, that I think is, is, is telling is how disconnected, um, if I can use the varying groups, the, the, the public and communities, the indigenous communities, the municipalities, the provinces, and the federal authorities, they aren't aligned on jurisdiction, on, on approval processes, on impacts, on land use. It's never going to be perfect, and proponents need to understand that they got a lot of hard work to do um, on the ground. But um, we see our country as, as a divided nation of provinces with different agendas, and and uh, that's got to come to some sense of alignment. You know where Mark started. We have to get aligned on this, understand what the impacts are, and then create the ability to communicate to that to the public. That here's where this is taking you. And you don't knee jerk reactions to a reaction of a spike at, at the gas pump with some political decision to change something. It's got to be a consistent understanding of what those impacts are generated by and what the right response is. You're seeing some of the same things as Mark. Mark. Just shortly, because I don't want to yeah. dominate the, the talk here, but you just showed Denise Mullen, who I've, I've known for years, and so I feel good to come after her a little bit and say, when, you would. When, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. When, when we say, here's how much is electricity of our system right now, so look at this, 80% of our energy has to come from somewhere else, without mentioning, oh yeah, the electric car is three times more efficient than the gasoline car. So there's one third of the amount of energy required. And transportation, by the way, is our biggest source of emissions in British Columbia. That changes the calculations. Secondly, the heat pump, three times more efficient than an ultra-efficient natural gas furnace. So, and, and nor do people like that talk about, oh yeah, so I remember when we said it was impossible for Ontario to get rid of all those coal plants in 10 years and drop emissions 90%, and then they did it. Electricity prices went up. They went up about 15%. And then Denmark, get rid of all those coal plants. 
Sweden decarbonized its building sector in a 20-year period. I've studied that to death. It was a diversity of, of, of things that they did that was very innovative. Total cost of housing services, about the same at the end of that. So there are so many examples, and I just ask why someone like Denise wouldn't want to talk about those. <laughs> Ross. I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Mark. I mean, this is, these are scaremongers. They're going, the future, I'll, I'll tell you one thing, nobody knows what the future is going to be, and, and they're trying to predict it with the past as their model. If there's one thing the future will not be, it's like the past. I guarantee that. It's going to be something else. Why? We have this immense technology change. We have these, these crises I've talked about. Biodiversity crisis is pretty serious. We're going to have to change, folks, or we're going to have some even more serious problems than we have with climate change. That's just a subset. Um, so, you know, we have to change how we live and how we work and how we travel and how we eat. And all these things are actually happening right now. There are millions and millions of Canadians who are actually walking the talk. They're doing that. They're trying to eat differently, lower on the food chain. They're trying to travel less. They're trying to live in more dense buildings. This is not a bad future. This is a good future for the planet. It's a good future for people. It's not going to be like we have lived for the last 50 years. And it's not going to be with this antiquated energy system that we've lived in. It's wasteful. Just look at cars. And forget electric cars. Just look at internal combustion engines, how much more efficient they are than you know, the ones that I grew up with and, and you grew up with, Ian. It's a different world. So, so do not expect the future is going to be like the past. Technology is incredible. The things we're doing in clean energy right now with battery pairings, we're building, we're building uh, battery uh, solar and battery wind plants in places like Hawaii and France and the United States right now that are producing electricity for eight cents a kilowatt hour. Base load power virtually. And that, I mean, that was unheard of five years ago. This is the pace of technological change in the clean energy business. And you're seeing the same thing in things like heat pumps, how we drive, how we live, um, and, and how we behave. And it's, it's not going to be a worse standard of living, by the way. It's going to be a different way of life, but it's going to be much, much uh, less consumptive. It has to be. And it is going to be less consumptive of things like electricity. So just because you have these projections doesn't mean the future is going to actually be like that. So folks, get with the program. And uh, I think uh, we're all going to benefit if we do it even quicker than we, we think we can. Well, Denise's question is, uh, uh ignited some interesting responses, Roger. And then, Ellis, I'm going to get your response, too. Yeah, I, I think uh, when we look at the energy problem, as Ross said earlier and others alluded to, there's different uh, uh, actions that are going to lead to the decarbonization outcome. So energy efficiency uh, completely uh, is going to be one of the most significant opportunities we have in how we live, our building stock, uh, uh, the uh, the building standards, the carbon intensity of a building, building envelope, all those innovations are going to see all forms of energy reduced as our population grows. So right away, you're going to have a, a downward trend. Then when you look at uh, the forms of energy, you know, uh, gaseous energy that's uh, carbon neutral, you know, we started a renewable natural gas program in BC, first utility in North America that had renewable natural gas on bill. Uh, you know, we now have, uh, with the, the BC government, uh, they uh, amended the greenhouse gas reduction regulation. We uh, have, uh, uh, we can buy up to 15% of our natural gas coming from renewable sources, right? So, you know, that's just the first step. Uh, hydrogen, again, uh, as far as how you decarbonize heavy duty industry, hydrogen coming from either uh, 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 waste heat, green hydrogen, turquoise hydrogen, 
those are all going to be lower carbon sources. It's not going to be a linear uh, projection, all else stays equal, and then you just have this massive expansion. There will be greater uh, need for electrical sources. BC Hydro and their resource plan, our resource plan at Ford, as we see on the electric side, there will be greater electrification. We will need more resources. Those resources will cost. But it's a question of what is the marginal abatement cost. How much for that cleaner molecule from a gas perspective, a cleaner electron, relative to the carbon you're avoiding, right? So I think that, you know, I, I'm, I'm with Ross. These projections um, you have to be uh, careful with, but you also have to make sure that you're never short infrastructure in a transition. Right? The one thing we can't be short on is the actual infrastructure to move the energy because that's when you get into problems like Texas, California's had brownouts. So the takeaway for me is as you think about this, it's an energy transition, not an energy disruption. You know, municipalities that sit there and want to say, wait, 2025 is now you have to ban all these appliances. To me, that's, that's sort of missing the point here, right? You know, the, the, the target is how do you transition uh, as you have innovation and you're getting cleaner and cleaner and cheaper and cheaper and more plentiful energy, more efficient appliances. You mentioned uh, electric heat pumps. Uh, uh, you know, gas heat pumps, we're now offering incentives or gas heat pumps that are more than 100% efficient, work great in colder climates. Hybrid heating systems that are electric uh, baseload, but at certain uh, set points, uh, you, uh, you can fuel those with natural gas or hydrogen or renewable natural gas. Again, thinking about how you're going to uh, rethink of the what used to be complementary systems into an integrated system, incorporating multiple sources of cleaner and cleaner energy. So I think we get there. I think the bigger challenge is making sure the policies and the regulations are aligned so they're not in conflict. So you actually can get action incrementally from now out into 2050. Is that possible, Alice? And your reaction to Denise's uh, Ooh, remarks? And, yeah. uh, yeah, thanks for the question, <laughs> I think. As the only politician here, uh, I'll basically tell you what I've, I've actually come to understand over 19 years, no matter what policy you're looking at, uh, I fail to see decision makers talking about the impact on humans. Regular humans. I agree with the idea that the transition's gonna happen. It's gonna happen without us, with or without us. The technology is just growing leaps and bounds as years go by, and we will get there. But don't leave anybody behind. That is really why I got into this game. I mean, a lot of us can afford this transition. I mean, the government's giving you uh, subsidies to buy an uh, electric car. Well, there's a lot of people that live in Canada that can't afford that. And I can guarantee you, some of the most disadvantaged people are not sitting by their screens watching us. No. They're not following policy. They're not following what's happening in the House of Commons or in the B.C. legislature. I agree with this. I agree with all of it. We're on a great path. But that path has got to happen globally. And as well, we can't leave anybody behind. The whole point of First Nations getting involved with clean energy, with LNG, with oil, with forestry, <clears throat> with mining, was because they were left behind. Well, you bring up a good point. I'm going to get you to hang on for just one second because... Ian, you've talked about it, so have you, Ross, and, and Roger. When we take a look at the production of energy and what it brings towards economic reconciliation between First Nations and those of the rest of us who call British Columbia home, how important is it that we be equals at the table and that we all share in the benefit of this, no, no matter which way we're going? 
I was at a, a resource conference, energy conference, and um, one of the speakers, uh, Chief Charlene Gale from uh, from Fort Nelson, I think she's also the chair of the First Nation uh, Major Resource uh, Council, Major Project Council. She had a quote that resonated with me, and she said, the road to net zero goes through Indigenous lands. Right, so that that's that's the uh, that the opportunity, the truth and reconciliation, um, the the calls to action, the the ninety two or ninety four calls. Uh, there's a, a handful in there that are directed towards the corporate community, right? You know, uh, the engagement around uh, consent, uh, the indigenous awareness, making sure that we're uh, participating in uh, traditional territories of First Nation peoples that we should um, uh, make sure that our folks uh, understand the history, the cultures, the journey, the challenges that, that they've, that they've uh, uh, dealt with and ensure that, that they're full participants in it. Now, does that mean equity investment or does that mean uh, jobs? It could mean a number of different things. You know, we've been fortunate at Fortis BC our Mount Hayes LNG facility that uh, came online in uh, January of 2012, 15% uh, of that's owned by two First Nations. Not a lot of people know that, but we uh, created a structure where there was direct First Nation equity participation in that project. Our Tilbury facility, we're looking to expand that for Marine Jetty to, to, to get uh, uh, the container ships to come into Port of Vancouver off of uh, uh, marine gas oil, which is much heavier polluting, get them onto uh, LNG and eventually renewable LNG. Uh, well, we've struck a deal with the, uh, the Musqueam Indian Band to be equity participants in that. Uh, and something that Ellis uh, uh, mentioned about wood fibers approval, we had the similar process. We had an environmental assessment for our uh, pipeline to serve uh, wood fiber. We also uh, uh, sought and uh, obtained from the Squamish, they had an Indigenous-led environmental assessment process. It came up with 27 considerations and going through that uh, Indigenous-led environmental assessment improved our project because not only were we looking at technical uh, solutions on our construction, but we were informed of cultural considerations. So our route took into uh, consideration not just the technical practices of how you uh, build a gas line, uh, but also the cultural sensitivities of where we are operating. So for instance, uh, we now have a tunnel under the estuary because of the cultural significance versus our original plan, which was uh, an open trench dig and laying the pipe. So, you know, there is, uh, I believe, a great desire for Indigenous communities to be full participants. Uh, there's a lot of capacity. Um, and I think it's really a question of, and this is where, one place where I think governments can really help, is making sure that they have the access to capital um, because not every First Nation is in the same uh, uh, financial position. Some are, uh, have much greater uh, resources, have more opportunities. Sometimes you'll be dealing with a, an Indigenous community that this is the only project on the energy side that they have in front of them. They may not be as well-versed, so, so I think there's an, a real opportunity BC's adopted UNDRIP, Canada's adopted UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Make sure that they're being supported to be uh, full participants in this transition. Yeah. I've got to add a little bit. I, I know agree, you do. I agree with everything <laughs> Roger said. And, and Ross made a really interesting point earlier, which is the way I characterize it is you don't realize the change you're in until at some point you turn around and look backwards. 
and the change is, is happening so quickly now. And one of the changes I'm seeing and, and hopefully you have been a part of and want to continue to be a part of is that economic reconciliation with the indigenous peoples of this country because there are huge opportunities. And I'm going to continue to work very hard with companies and corporations who have an effect on the land, who have opportunities for employment and contracts to more deeply understand where all those options are. And, and you know, Roger talks about jobs and, and equity ownership, uh, but it's, it's more than that. It, it's monitoring, it's advice, it's guidance, it's participation on, on committees that are overseeing how projects get built and how they get done. I've seen rich improvement in the lives of Indigenous peoples in many of the communities that Trans Mountains touched. I've been in those communities, I've seen them before and after, and it's been transformational just because we were wholly open-minded to uh, what the possibilities could be. It was about opportunity and not um, something we had to do. You know, it, it was opportunity uh, focused. And, and I think the last point I would make there is that uh, People talk a lot about consultation, engagement. There's different capacities. People have different um, uh, capacity to, to engage and so forth. What I tell Corporate Canada now is we are way past consultation and engagement. We are about inclusion and opportunity now. And those communities that, uh, 63 communities that have support agreements were never against the pipeline per se they wanted to understand the effect, the impact, the protection, the land, the response capabilities, and their involvement in it. And we accomplished that. So uh, I think Corporate Canada is rapidly understanding that it's about inclusion and it's about creating the opportunities. And the consultation processes were yesterday's uh, you know, catchphrase. Now it's about inclusion and making all those efforts to, uh, to harvest those opportunities. and. Uh, and I think it's a huge opportunity for this country. And I think yeah. that, that if you think about the effects of that, it's going to mean jobs, it's going to mean education, it's going to mean infrastructure on reserve, it's going to be water on reserves, it's going to be telecommunications, it's going to be safer living conditions. Um, I, just, I just can't be more excited about what that opportunity is going to be for Indigenous Canadians in the future. Yeah. Derek. You have a question. I'm sorry, I kept you. I, have one. I hope I haven't, haven't lost it. Um, <laughs> notwithstanding, notwithstanding the energy crisis in Europe right now, um, countries still have made uh, commitments to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, when it comes to natural gas, the International Energy Agency, uh, depending on to what level uh, countries uh, live up to their commitments, uh, they have global um, natural gas uh, demand either stable or declining as much as 40% over the coming decades. Um, um, so, so I'm just wondering, in those scenarios, uh, how much longer does the, the window for LNG development here um, stay open after LNG Canada? Ross, why don't you say, yeah, Ross. Yeah. Uh, you know, we asked the same question 15 years ago. Because at the time when we were starting to get into it and starting to research it, LNG was not a, an issue in Canada. The prices were so low. In fact, the original LNG proposal for our region was actually to import LNG for Canada and distribute it across British Columbia. 
uh, within a couple of years, they changed it because of uh, technologies advancing, but also they could see a demand all, all around the world. And back then, uh, I actually largely depended on people in industry and government to kind of tell us about what the future would be. And it, it came down, the lowest common denominator for me was a phrase that said, look, you're going to have peaks and valleys, but energy is never going to go away. In fact, if anything, globally, people will be looking for cleaner forms of energy, and LNG right now as part of that transition is a cleaner energy. So I, my band council actually decided way before LNG came to town, we got to be looking at projects 50, 60, 70, 80 years, 90 years at a time. That for us is a short period of time in our history. Whereas a lot of the companies coming to our territory said, well, we want to sign a 40 year lease. And we're saying, why, why so short term? <laughs> but but I, I think, unless somebody proves me wrong, energy demands are gonna keep climbing. And that's gonna actually speak to the clean energy demand as well as uh, transitional fuels such as uh, LNG. Roger, do you have a response to that question? Yeah, uh, not, not, a, not a prognosticator. I, I think there is uh, opportunity for uh, further expansion of, of LNG in, in BC. I think um, what's happened in the BC front, in the Canadian front, is you know, because we have set rigorous emission standard, I know in the mandate letters uh, that Premier Evie uh, sent out when he appointed his cabinet, all large industrial facilities now have to have a net zero plan. So that's a new standard on the development. So back to what Mark had said about uh, electric drive, how does that fit into your, how much electricity you have, how much use you have. Um, I think it's a question not of whether there's demand globally, it's really the policy environment, whether BC is gonna be um, pursuing that opportunity or not. Others may make a different calculation. So I think there's a, a demand side that is probably going to be there, the window still open. Whether BC decides to take that is going to be really a function of a number of different considerations. It'll be more policy driven than I think demand yeah. uh, driven, to be honest. And, and just to add a, a clarification, when the Inter International Energy Agency makes these um, scenarios, they're not forecasts. Like they are a scenario in which humanity keeps the temperature from rising by 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, for example, that's the one in which um, global natural gas demand already comes close to its peak and therefore LNG production. So you have this difference between what we're prescribing as how all of humanity ought to act and then predicting how they'll act. And we have continued to fail on this. So um, if I was an investor and a better, uh, yes, I'd invest in LNG so that I could make money while we um, cause enormous damage to the planet. So this is, uh, this is going to be the bet on right now. The good news, very modest good news, is that um, humanity's starting to build up policies, expectations, and technological innovation from leading organizations, and even from a sense of where we need to get to, which is global tariffs, carbon tariffs, to make all countries act on this. And there's more of that now as the Europeans, when we talk about energy crisis in Europe, it's been less of an energy crisis than we thought. Like the media's love that story. But as we've seen countries move quick, more quickly, the Europeans especially are talking about how do we make this a global 
effort. So you can still bet on LNG, but if you're betting on the one point that will attain 1.5C, that makes LNG a pretty risky bet. <laughs> you reminded me of that wonderful quote about predictions. You got to be really careful about them, especially if they have anything to do with the future. Right. <laughs> well, actually, LNG, I mean, an interesting little anecdote about LNG. I mean, I, I'm kind of neutral about all the billions of dollars that are going into LNG in BC because, you know, the future is going to predict whether they're successful investments or not, at least they're private sector investments, for heaven's sakes. But, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, billions and billions of dollars were spent in the U.S. to build LNG terminals that brought LNG into the U.S. because they didn't have enough gas. The second this frack gas revolution started happening and they found more gas than they could ever consume in 100 years in the U.S., they reverse engineered them and now they're using them as export terminals. Right. So, you know, again, the future is hard to predict. And, and just because these LNG plants are getting built doesn't mean they're going to be used for the next 50 years. The things that people can do, and, and let's not worry too much about where the, you know, the gas is cleaner, it's much cleaner than oil, it's much cleaner than coal. It's basically the best of the dirtiest forms of, 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 of electricity generation. So I'm not too fussed about LNG, but what we can do in BC is things like embrace this carbon tax we have. Embrace it, it's a really good thing. It is a tax on carbon pollution by people who are actually polluting in the air today in BC. It's what we can do. We should embrace it across Canada. We should, we should do all we can do to use this example all over the world, especially into the U.S. where, you know, it's something that should be done. It's a good thing. And every single citizen can participate in this issue of, of fossil fuel uh, consumption right now. And if they don't consume fossil fuels or if they don't use fossil fuels, they don't pay the carbon tax. So, Sean, just to throw you off what I asked you to do, I see that our second question up there deals with this, with this carbon tax issue right now. We'll put that out, and then I'm going to ask each of you just to have a couple of uh, remarks for as we close up, because we're, you know, pushing way out right, right up against the boundary of our, uh, of our allotted time slot, because it's been very invigorating conversation. The question is uh, from Thomas Watts. What role does the carbon tax play in shaping our energy future? Should it go up? Should it stay the same? Or should it be eliminated? Who wants to jump in on that one? Yeah. <laughs> Mark. Well, one thing I want to point out, and, and um, uh, Ross, your, your comments even made me, uh, brought that up to my mind, was that Yes, the carbon price is, is, is fantastic. And, and from an econo economist's point of view or a business person's point of view, it's the best kind of climate policy. It really is. And, and that's why even oil companies have been calling for carbon taxes for a very long time. Um, but it's politically difficult because people will play with it. Uh, on, and I, we talked about that, that earlier. It turns out that a lot of our reductions are not caused by the carbon tax. We, they're caused by regulations. They're caused, in the United States, they're planning to do a huge amount through government subsidy by, by tax deduction, tax credits. And we also, though, have a lot of regulations. We, we regulated the electricity sector to get emissions down. In the U.S., um, it's something like 30 states 
have what's called a renewable portfolio standard. That's a regulation that's forcing a rising amount of renewables. That's done more to close the coal industry than any other kind of policy. And um, in, in, so in British Columbia, we have a zero emission vehicle mandate like California's and Quebec's. The federal government's going to copy it. Um, that's a kind of regulation that doesn't say to the auto industry, you have to sell this many of this kind of car. It says it has to be a zero emission car. Maybe hydrogen will win you know, or win in the trucking sector or even some biodiesel or something. It doesn't try to pick winners and losers, but says, for heaven's sakes, we know that vehicles can't burn gasoline or diesel anymore in the future. So the carbon tax uh, is, is great. We have to be careful with it on industry. Um, the federal government has a, what I would call a better carbon tax for industry than we have in British Columbia because it doesn't hurt industry's cost of production the way our carbon tax will as it rises in BC. So I would look for some innovation going on there in British Columbia in the next while. Ellis? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a great incentive for people to, to you know, take a really good look at their emissions. Uh, the only th the thing I'll say is that governments should actually take that tremendous amount of revenue and actually put that into standards, put that into technology, and not use it for politics, pet projects to buy votes. And I'll keep going back to it. Be fair for those people that can't afford it, because there's a lot of them in British Columbia that will not be able to make that transition as easily as what we're talking about here tonight. Didn't we have a carbon tax policy that did exactly that same thing? We when did. It was, it was, it was actually the, the tax <laughs> that got taken away by this provincial government. But yeah, there was taxes going back to the, the people that paid those carbon taxes in the first place. Okay, I'm, we got to wrap up here. And, and I, want, I want just a closing comment from each of you about where you think we're at. Uh, are we moving in the right direction? And can we achieve what we believe to be our goals of reducing or decarbonizing energy? Mark, I started with you on the first question. I'd like to start with you in closing remarks. Well, I want to... I feel I've had all the chance to say what I want to say. I want to thank you very much for doing this because we need these kind of discussions in British Columbia. And, and what I hope for, I know you provoked us a little bit with uh, Denise and others, <laughs> but is that, we, is that we push back. And I was really happy with our panelists here to push back on people that make it sound like this incredibly horrendous thing. Because does that is one of the main reasons that we've been failing on climate. And yet, if I look at, as I say, um, automobiles in Norway, housing in, uh, in uh, Sweden, or uh, uh, electricity generation from coal in Denmark or Ontario, I see dramatic things that happened in the span of a decade. And if we get the policies right and we have influential people arguing for that and not scaremongering, we can make this work. Ross. Yeah. Amen. I mean, it's, it's doable. I, I, I've preached to my family, to friends. The solutions are there. It's not that we know all of them, but we know the direction we're going. I'm pretty proud of what we're doing politically in British Columbia and, and Canada. I think we're on the right path. Um, and and uh, we're making a lot of good bits of legislation. I, the governments get it. They get we have to make this big sea change in how we, how we behave and how we, how we create electricity and how we create, create energy generally. We're on that road and, and uh, not to be discouraged, for people not to be discouraged by this, this, this difficulty that's ahead of us. In fact, embrace it. 
and be part of the solution. We can all be part of the solution. Every single person in BC, whether they're rich or poor, can be part of the solution. Now, obviously, there's more challenges if you don't have the money to, 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 to embrace the change, just exactly like, like you've mentioned. But, um, but I think that's where government has to come in and, and provides some solutions to, to people that, that, that are challenged that way. Uh, the solutions are there. I think we just have to knuckle down, buckle down, and do it. Ian. Yeah, we've talked a lot this evening, and it's been a great conversation, Stuart, about many different elements of it. And I guess when I think about what I've heard from, from all of us this evening is, is it boils it down into some pretty important themes and, and, and conclusions that I think we all collectively agree with, and that is the pace of technological change is going to continue to ramp up, is going to continue to deliver results in the future that we can't even predict today. That's a good thing. Um, I think we've heard that we've got to be responsible uh, with the inclusion of Indigenous peoples and communities across this country in, in the fabric of that future. And I think that's happening. I think you're seeing industry in Canada um, recognizing net zero by 2050, recognizing decarbonization, recognizing uh, the race and title of Indigenous peoples in our country, recognizing uh, local impacts and all politics are local. Uh, and we need to respect that. So I think there's great things happening. And if I look back a decade, when I started the journey on Trans Mountain, we're in a different place than we were a decade ago. We weren't talking about climate or emissions or indigenous rights just 10 or 12 years ago. And today we are. And in fact, we're moving right past them through into this, this future that Ross talks about. So I think the future is, is, um, is going to be... Uh, 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 great for all of us if we all just let ourselves be a part of that solution if we take the politics out of it if we don't play with the carbon tax for political reasons that's not its intent it's a transparent device to affect price signals to affect demand to affect upstream you know uh, uh production and that's what it's there for so let it do that without playing with it so i think if if there's less political motivation of the decisions that are made if industry keeps growing, if BC understands it's part of a confederation too, uh, and we're all, you know, uh, looking to align on this future, um, I think the future for British Columbia is, is, is wonderful. Trans Mountain, as I, I once had a very um, interesting debate with, with a mayor that will go um, unnamed. And um, after a lengthy debate about the merits and the pros and the cons of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, both in its existing form and expanded form, we boiled it all down to how long will fossil fuels will be consumed to any extent in our society. And, uh, and, and the mayor's view was 10 or 15 years. My view was 30 or 40 years. And the return on and of capital on an infrastructure project is about 30 or 40 years. So I said, I'm good. In 30 or 40 years, I can be moving water from Canada to California to grow fruits and vegetables. But, you know, these infrastructures have, have lives and have immediate needs. And uh, that's not going to change quickly. It will change over time. And I think Ross has made a great, uh, you know, uh, uh, statement around that change and how quickly it's happening and how we all need to understand that will solve many of the anxious debates we're having today and we need to trust that make sure capital can be deployed make sure capital can be attracted into those projects and uh, I think the future is great Roger and uh, your comments and then Alice I'd like to 
give you the last word, okay? <laughs> uh, Roger. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, first of all, yeah, thanks for being uh, in the invite, and it's been a great discussion. I really appreciate the different perspective. I do think, uh, in a certain way, energy uh, is a topic that everyone relies on it, but you know, share a wallet. I think the six to eight percent that Mark said sometimes it doesn't get the broad discussion or the in-depth discussion that it deserves because it is it is fundamental to everything we do every day in society. So I'm gonna answer your question in two parts. One is um, when I think about 2050, if that's what we're using as our, as our benchmark, uh, the 1.5 degree, the commitments uh, at COP, uh, the various COPs, uh, the UN summits on, on climate change, like I, I, I do think that there is uh, the, the innovation and the technology will get us to uh, a, a low carbon economy. I think that's, um, you know, it, you know, Ross's enthusiasm, I'm gonna bottle that and take it home. Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of smart people chasing this. There's a lot of incentives in place. Uh, the US in, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, oddly named, but it's a, it's a climate bill. The biggest one they've ever signed, $340 million. So billion, sorry. Uh, so yeah, so you, you I think that the, the technology part will get us there. I think the debate about climate change is past us finally. I remember when that was still a debate. I think it's accepted. We, we're living it. I think what keeps me up at night a little bit is how this transition occurs, right? And this gets back to the policy and the regulation has to consider the multiple impacts. So this, this is treated as a transition because um, the chief economist of the IA the International Energy Agency said to me once, it's fine to disrupt your uh, your airport, uh, your sorry, your, your taxi or your hotel through Uber and Airbnb, but you don't want to disrupt your energy systems. You don't want to disrupt your food systems. So we do really have to think about what the transition means. We can't be short infrastructure. We can't be short uh, at any point in the time. So for me, the ask really of policymakers, um, regulators, industry participants is really to think about you know, what is the end goal and setting up policy that, 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 that puts us in a position to adopt these technologies, have the platform to develop and deploy innovation. I have no doubt we'll get there. We know the technologies exist. We've seen them in play. Uh, it's really a question of how do we harness that in a way that's going to have the least amount of disruption as we get there. Ellis, final word to you. Great discussion. And in fact, this is what I've been looking forward to is having a mature conversation with the uh, Nobody taking positions. I mean, who's to say who's right and wrong when you're looking 20, 30 years down the road? But I will tell you, 30 years before I came along, our people were fighting environmental impacts when rights and title wasn't an issue, when environmental stewardship wasn't an issue. Those words weren't even around. So all I, I, when I inherited that, all I did was actually take it to a higher level in terms of legislation, regulation, and policies, uh, including the case law. And... Uh, contrary to popular belief, I did not give LNG a free ride. I criticized them. I looked for everything that was wrong with LNG along with the good. And I think this is part of uh, being a leader, no matter what you're looking at. And I will still turn a critical eye to clean energy, wind, solar, power. That's what a leader does. I mean, if we are looking for a future where we want to hand a, a planet to our children, we got to get it right. And we can't be spinning information. We can't be doing that. We can't be hiding facts. Because basically, we're all in this together at the end of the day. And so I think that's where the best politicians, 
that can be leaders can do the best good for the planet as well as people so that people don't get left behind. Thank you. Thank you all. It's been a, a wonderful uh, conversation and, and, as you pointed out, respectful, uh, filled with many insights. And uh, it leaves me with a sense that when we collectively want to work together to solve problems, we can do it. So thank you very much for your time. Thank, yeah. thank you. Thank you to all of you online who are watching. And just before I sign off, because I have to thank them, we wouldn't be able to do this program without them, our sponsors, which are the Surrey Board of Trade, uh, Research Co., Landlord BC, uh, Polygon, BD, the Port of Vancouver, and Investment uh, um, News Network, along with Stem Cell Technologies. Thank you all. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And join us next month when we take a look at the rental housing situation <laughs> in British Columbia. Another part of the housing puzzle. <laughs> Good, Good night. night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs>